It's a beautiful song, waiting here for you. And that's what we're here for, aren't we? We're waiting for him to speak and move in our hearts and our lives. And so that's beautiful. Thank you for that today. Hey, I want to remind you just a couple things. Uh, first off, uh, make sure you take one of those magnets with you that Jeremy mentioned about making the 2024 count. Just grab one of those, put it on your fridge, and just a reminder to you of just how you can make this year count for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I want to encourage you to do that. We also have uh, Aaron Eaton here today. Aaron has stepped down from our Young Pros College Ministry. If you'd come up to the front here for a minute, Aaron, uh, we want to present him with a little gift of his going away. It just got to be too much. He had three kids now, three kids, and uh, he had college kids coming in and out of his house all the time too and loving it. But it, it, was, it really got busy, and, and he needed to pull back a little. And so he's stepping down. We're going to just thank him. And then also Daniel Brown will be taking over that ministry, uh, the young pros, and, and developing that. So, Aaron, we want to say thank you. Here's a little gift and all that you've done. We love you. We appreciate you being, appreciate you being solid. Absolutely. All right, buddy. You better go that way. Yeah. And then let me mention, too, about that, these little gifts that you'll see in these uh, things. Make sure you take one. These are wonderful little reminders. I remember the first time I got one from Love Life, and I put it in my office. I have one in my car, too. It's just a little reminder. This is a life, just a symbol of a life, and this is 10 to 12 weeks, and that is precious to me, and uh, it's a good reminder for me, and so I want to encourage you to do that because we believe, and I believe with all my heart, 100%, that it is wrong to kill an innocent human being. It's wrong. It's wrong. It doesn't matter whether they're 30 or 10 or still in the womb. It is wrong to kill an innocent human being. And these are innocent human beings that are literally being killed and slaughtered. And we've got to do everything we can. We put thousands and thousands of dollars into this to help uh, these pregnancy centers and these support groups and that ultrasound machine out there that you saw. We gave money toward that. That's there every Tuesday morning giving free ultrasound, all kinds of things that we're invested in because we believe that this is the way to protect innocent lives. And so I want to encourage you to take one of those. Put it somewhere at your house that you'll be reminded of that every now and then to pray for that, pray for the ministries, our um, all ministry here. Uh, with Lindsay and just the impact and the connection she's made for us in the counties. Uh, we're so grateful for that, and so we want you to continue to pray for that. I know there's a group going up to D.C. There's a, um, is it Right to Life, or is it another organization that does it? Okay, the March for Life, and it'll be at the D.C. grounds there. Um, and so um, we're going to be praying for them as well as they go up there and enter into that rally with them. So I want to mention that. I want to mention one more. I'm going to show you this picture. Just a beautiful picture. That's my little newest grand girl. And so uh, I couldn't help but show it. Uh, she was born yesterday. Her name is, you say, Selah in the Bible, but they called her Selah and then called her after Bettina, uh, nicknamed her B. So she's called BB as the grandma. And uh, so Selah B. Decker. That's number 10 for me. I'm so proud of that. I got 10 little Indians running around. I'm telling you, it's great. Five grandgirls, five grandboys, and it has been a wonderful journey. They're the only people you love to see them come to your house 
and you love to see them go. It's just a wonderful thing. And so it is one of the greatest things I have enjoyed getting older uh, and watching my grandkids grow up. I've just loved it. All right, today, take your Bibles to Mark 15. Mark 15. I'm going to read verses 15 to 28. I've entitled this message, Binding the Strong Man. Binding the Strong Man. Stand with me now. We're going to read God's Word. Verse 15. I had a lot of things go on today, so I want to jump right in. Verse 15, it says, And wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took him away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and they called together the whole Roman cohort, and they dressed him up in purple and twisted a crown of thorns and put it on him, and they began to greet him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they kept beating his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling. They were bowing down before him, and after they had mocked him, they took the purple robe off him, put on his own garments, and they led him out to crucify him. And they pressed into service a passerby coming from the countryside, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Then they brought him to the place of Golgotha, which is translated a place of a skull. And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide who should take what. Now it was the third hour, and they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. You may be seated. <coughs> Man, I've got this cough and I can't seem to get rid of it. I guess everybody's got this cough and it's going around. And I've had it and can't seem to shake it myself. But um, anyways, I hope I make it okay through this. Um, I want to I preach a message today around the cross because the centerpiece of our faith is the cross. You have to understand that. So core to us as a people of God, the centerpiece of our faith is the cross. Now, when I say the cross, I'm talking about the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we mean when we speak of the cross, the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the truth is, it is more than just a steeple you see on a church like we have. It is more than, it is more than just the jewelry you wear. Those, those are just symbols, but it is the substance of our faith. And, and, and sinners who fully would understand it, if they fully understood it, they'd run to it. And the saints who do understand it, the truth of the matter is, they would be all the more committed to live differently if they fully appreciated what was done for them on the cross. And so all of us have something to learn from this. That's why the Bible says, God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Substitutionary. It's a sacrifice of Jesus Christ. A sacrificial death. Now why did he have to die? He didn't just go to die to be an example or just to go to be death on a cross. Be died because every sin you've committed has ticked up a list of things against you. Every sin you've committed rings up a debt for you, and that debt builds up. And the payment for that debt is death. And, and the thing is, 
You, you would like someone to forgive you that debt. You'd like someone to pay for that debt, but you can't pay for it yourself. That's what's really clear from the Scriptures. You can't be good enough. You can't be a member at a church. You can't attend and try to be a really nice person. None of those things will pay your debt, but you have a debt to pay. You have a bill to pay, and it's for your sin, all of your sin. And, and, and the amazing thing about this is that someone has got to pick up the tab because death is the payment, and your sin has to be paid for. That's the rule and the law of the universe, that no one can be in the presence of God with sin. So somebody's got to die for you who's not in debt. That's the whole point of the Scriptures. Somebody's got to die who's not in debt, and the only person not in debt is God. He's the only one who hasn't sinned. So guess what God did? <laughs> he went to a cross he became a man, the man Christ Jesus, and he died for you. He paid the penalty for you. He paid the sin debt. He who knew no sin became sin for you, that you might be made the righteousness of God in him through Christ Jesus. It's all through Christ Jesus. It's an unbelievable thing. Just think about that for a minute. There is no other way to save you. There's no other plan. The only plan is someone who didn't have any sin, and that leads only to God. The only one that could have paid. That's the only plan that could have ever been created from before the foundations of the earth to save people from their sin. Someone who's never sinned. It's, it's absolutely unbelievable to try to hang, uh, to, to, to really hang that around your heart and get that into your heart. But when he was on that cross, he was paying for the sins of over 20 billion people. They estimate that 20 billion people have lived upon the face of the earth. The sins of 20 billion people were being hurled at Jesus at one moment in time. That's why when you study the scriptures, you see such an ugliness around the cross. Meanness, people trying to get even, people trying to mock, people beating him because it's the meanness of what sin looks like. When people are mean, they sin. When people are evil, they sin. When people are mad, they attack. They get in packs like wolves, and they come after you. That's what people do, and that's what has to be done with Jesus Christ. That's why it's such an evil, awful-looking thing, because at that moment in time when he's lifted up on that cross, he is the embodiment of sin. He looks like sin. He looks like it, and he has to look like it. Why do he do it? You and me. A simple, simple case. And so, Jesus experienced hell so that you and I could experience heaven. It's an incredible, incredible concept. That's, that's the power of the cross. Now, to the people on that day who witnessed this around the cross, they would come in and out of Jerusalem, and they'd see a guy hanging there with two other guys hanging there. That was a common scene. So, to them, they were just looking at a typical execution of interest. Let's just look at this guy. Let's see him suffer. The macabre in all of us would want to see the accident, would want to see someone beaten half to death and hang on a cross. There's something about that that would draw us to want to stare at that place on the cross, just like everyone going in and out of Jerusalem would have done that. They would have just stared at Jesus, at those three humans on the cross. Now, if you were a Roman citizen, 
you were never crucified. There was no chance you could ever be crucified. Crucifixion was saved for three kinds of people. No one else was crucified. Number one, if you were a slave, you could be crucified. Number two, if you were a vile criminal, you could be crucified. Number three, if you were a POW, they had a prisoner of war. They often crucified them. They didn't keep around for long. But if you're a Roman citizen, you never got that, so you never had to worry about that kind of death. You were killed instantly if you committed the crime of death to someone else. You didn't, you didn't go through the excruciating pain of the cross. Excrucis, Latin, out of the cross kind of pain. We get the word excruciating. The excruciating pain of the cross is the idea there. And so people were pretty much free of that if they were Roman citizens. But what they don't understand is when they attended that event or they would look at that cross, it was the most cosmic event imaginable. It was the most cosmic event imaginable. It's, it's, it's hard to fathom this. These people weren't just witnessing another crucifixion that they would see every week. They were witnessing an atonement. That's what they didn't understand. They were witnessing an atonement, that the wrath of God was being poured out on His Son as a substitute for those that actually deserved it. They didn't know that. They just thought they were looking at a crucifixion. You and I wouldn't have understood that unless we had the Apostle Paul to write the rest of Scripture to explain to us the significance of the cross. We would have never got this. But the Scriptures tell us this, the theological significance of this, and we can understand it in the context of this one naked event. My goal is to reveal to you to the direction and weight of the text as Mark reveals it, because everybody reveals it a different way in the Gospels as far as the four Gospel writers. But I want to do it the way Mark does it. All right? And so as I look at that, one thing that's clear to me is the persecution and execution of the true king of the Jews was sacrificial and a self-denial as he takes up his cross. And Mark wants to point out, here's the king of the Jews taking on a sacrifice in self-denial on a cross. So I've outlined this message around two points, and I hope to illustrate it at the end if time permits. Christ our King confronts two grueling adversities for our example, for our guidance, and for our adoration. Let me jump into them. Number one, first, the experience of shame and suffering. He had to experience shame and suffering. He had to look like the sin of experiencing shame. If you've ever experienced shame, which all of you have, you all have experienced shame at one level or another, to be shamed by someone, to be embarrassed, to be put in a place where you feel the guilt that's going on. It's not just something you feel. It also goes resident within you. And he had to bear that shame. He had to bear that suffering. Why? There must be a degradation of all that sin brings with it, and it's put upon Jesus. So he's got to look like it. He's got to look like that sin. So Pilate delivers him to be scourged, or some translations say flogged. There's three levels of flogging in the Roman first century. Number one, I'm going to say these in Latin, the first one is the fustigatio. 
I said that a little Italian though. The fustigatio, okay? Just, it, it sounds Italian to me, okay? Like a linguini, something you throw on your linguini, okay? But uh, fustigatio, that's the first level of scourging or flogging. It was the least severe. If you committed a misdemeanor, you stole something out of the store, or you hit someone, or you did something at a low level like in our country, it was considered a misdemeanor, and you were fustigatio. You were put on a whipping post, and you were hit three to four times, three to four times they would hit you with a whip. And it wasn't hard. It was just kind of, you did a misdemeanor, but when you walked away from three or four whips, okay, you said, I don't want to do that again. They didn't make you pay a fine. They didn't throw you in jail. They only served that for the worst criminals. These lower level misdemeanors were just whipped three or four times and you were let go. It pretty much kept crime down in Rome for the lower level criminal, all right? The next one was a flagellatio. A flagellatio. Okay, that's the second level of uh, whipping. This is for serious crimes, but the crimes could have been serious, but they didn't deserve the death penalty. So any crime, like a rape or something of that level, would deserve a flagellat. I can't even say it, flagellatio. Um, it would deserve you to get whipped, and the guy could whip you as long as he didn't kill you. So he could go as long as he wanted. This group of guys, 10 to 12 guys, were a special force on the squad for the police squad, okay? They were called the brute squad. That's how we translate it in our language, the brute squad. And so there was 10 to 12 of them that handled all of these. There's something about a guy when he has to continue to make somebody pay and punish someone, something happens in his psyche when he has hurt that many people. And they actually write about this in some of the Latin languages back then. But um, that was the flagellatio, okay? He could not kill the guy, but he could do anything he wanted up to death. The last one is the third one that happened to our Lord Jesus. It was called the verberatio, the verberatio. This is the most brutal. We know from history, 90% of the people that experienced verberatios died on the whipping post, on the whipping post. And the reason they died is because there was such a delight for the brute squad to kill a person on the whipping post. Why? You save a lot of time. You don't have to take them with this cross. You don't have to dig a hole. You don't have to put them on it. You just kill them at the whipping post. This was the most common way a person died who was put, um, put to the penalty of crucifixion. They could first kill them by the whipping post. Now, if you survived, you were taken and then you were hung on a cross and you were given a slow, painful death because the Romans perfected what the Persians and the Greeks could never perfect, and that was how do you keep someone alive long enough to make them pay and feel the pain all the way up until they die? They were the first people to perfect it. And so this is the spirit of what's behind this. They took Jesus, they put him on a whipping post. They would keep his back taut. They would put him around that whipping post, and then they would tie his hands, and they would keep his back taut so it would rip easier. Now, I'm not going to get into this too extensively. As a matter of fact, the, Amer the American Medical Association Journal, March 12, 1984, wrote an incredible article about the human suffering of the cross and what Jesus experienced, which is absolutely amazing to me. They'd even take the time to do that. But what would happen is, as you were tied to that by the brute squad, you would literally, um, 
you would literally be put on this whipping post and there would be two of the brute squad that would stand diagonally so that one would whip this way and then one would whip this way so they get both sides of your body from your front to your back. And they would do everything they could and they would strip you naked to do this. You'd have a little loincloth on but pretty much take all of your clothes off that they could so they'd do the most damage. damage. Alternately snapping a whip which had pieces of metal, bone, and glass fixed inside of the leather. The intent was to tear beneath the flesh, not just the flesh, but tear beneath the flesh, and their goal was to expose bones and organs. Now, that's about as deep as I want to go with you because it is very gruesome to think about that, and I don't want to make this into that kind of sermon, but it is something you can read about on your own if you have a greater interest in it. Okay, let me just stop and say this. Jesus had to stay alive. He had to stay alive on the whipping post and be in the 10% or he could not have been lifted up at the cross. But he said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to me. He had to make it to the cross. Once he was at the cross, it didn't matter what happened then because he had to do everything he could to get to that cross. So he had to survive this whipping post. Now, why did they lift people up? in those days. The reason they lifted people up in those days is because like the Persians, like the Greeks, and like the Romans, they believe that this earth is Mother Earth and she is alive and she is a God. And Mother Earth is a God and so you do not defile her planet or soil. And so what they believed by criminals is they had to be lifted up off the ground so that when they were killed, they weren't killed on her soil and they didn't desecrate the land. And that's why they killed in the air, and that's why Jesus was lifted up. And so in doing that, the Bible says in verse 16, they led Jesus from the, now I want you to hear some key words here, they'll come out in just a moment. They led him from the praetorium, that's the open court next to the headquarters of the palace of Pilate, and the Roman cohort was brought out with the brute squad. So you got 10 to 12 guys, and then a Roman cohort came out to watch. A Roman cohort cohort is 600 people, 600 people, 600 soldiers, all right? So 600 soldiers are invited to this. This happened often because it was their only fun for the day. This is one of the highlights they had as soldiers was to watch someone be beaten who was a prisoner or a, a criminal at this level. And so when they came out to make fun of Jesus with the brute squad, they stripped him of his first blood-soaked outfit that he had on his garment they ripped that off him that would have dried on him and then they put a purple robe on him when they put the purple robe on him you need to understand that purple was the most valuable dye back then it represented royalty and it was against the law for anybody to wear purple but Caesar so you had to be of the level of a Caesar or an official at a high level to be able to wear purple otherwise it was illegal to wear it in that day and it could, you could risk your life for it. And so they put that on Jesus, and in mockery, they dressed him like a king, gave him a makeshift reed, a scepter, and then they gave him a crown of thorns, and they plated it. They forced it on his head. I have one in my office, and it's 10 years old, and it still is 
Well, let me just say this. You could prick your finger with it because I did one time and I'm like, I'm never going to do that again. But I just can't imagine that being pressed down upon his head. I could do a whole sermon on that, to be honest with you. But let me just move on here. So they pushed that down on his head and then they saluted him and said, Hail Jesus, King of the Jews. Hail Jesus. They were mocking him. So they dressed him to mock him and they saluted him. They struck him on the head with the reed for his scepter, and then they played a soldier's game. It's implied here, but I'll just explain to you. It was called hot hand, the game of hot hand. It is where they would blindfold the prisoner. And the reason they blindfolded him is so they didn't know where they were going to be hit, and then the 10 to 12 guys would come up, and they would cold cock him. And then you had to predict, you as the criminal had to predict who hit you. Now, it's one thing when you have, get in a fight and you have the ability to see and you can go to the left, go to the right, try to escape the jabs. But even if it hits you, you can prepare your body for the blow. But here they would blindfold so the person had no idea where the blow was coming from and it would take them completely, uh, just knock them off psychologically with when am I going to get hit? When am I going to get hit? And uh, it just was a horrible, gruesome, great game. And then after all 10 to 12 hit him, there was one guy that didn't hit him. He was like the leader of the game. Then the other 11 that hit him, then they would pull off his blindfold and say, now who hit you? And if you didn't say anything or you didn't respond or you didn't say one of the soldiers, they'd blindfold you again and everybody would hit you all over again. They forced you to play the game. That's what was so fun to them is to torture him while they're forcing him to play this game. And then after they feign worship and fall to their knees, they strip him again of the purple robe and they put on his former garment. Now, why does Mark tell it like this? This is what I don't think you would know unless you had somebody to really tell you the understanding of the book of Mark, but I want to try to do that. This really is a description of Jesus, the King of the Jews, being compared and paralleled to the Caesar of Rome. You just don't quite see that when you're reading it, but it is a comparison, a parallel to Caesar. It is how Caesar was treated when he would have a parade, but it would be completely opposite. So when Caesar would have a parade, the triumphant Caesar, after he came back from a battle and was victorious, he would start a parade and it would start in the praetorium. Then from the praetorium, he would invite a cohort of 600 soldiers and they would surround him in the parade that was going to go down through the streets. So it's the exact same number of 600 soldiers to escort the Caesar. Caesar would be clothed in complete purple on that day, he alone, as Jesus was. During the procession, a hundred on intervals of the cohort would bow down and say, Hail Caesar, King of the Jews. So it's a mockery, what you're seeing is a mockery of how they did it to Jesus, but it happened exactly like this for the Caesar of Rome. And so even the people would bow down as they would go down through the streets saying, Hail Caesar, King of the Jews, or in this case, uh, Pilate, if it was in Jerusalem, but the real one was in Rome, so they probably wouldn't have said King of the Jews there. Um, then number five, there would be this close confidant, confidant, let's say it that way, an official standing next to Caesar, 
as Caesar was paraded down the street, he would go out in front of him just a few feet, and he would carry a double-axed sword. Uh, let me see if I got that right, double-axed. I don't think it was a sword. It was just a double axe, uh, a double-bladed axe that was used in war that the Caesar used, and he would carry that out in front of the Caesar. You say, well, where's that with Jesus? Well, verse 21 says, one Simon bears the weapon of Jesus. Simon the Serene bears the weapon of Jesus and carries his cross as he's paraded through the city, and he goes out in front of him with the cross. His is not an instrument of victory like Caesar had when he defeated his enemies. His is an instrument of death, but he's going to take that cross, and he's going to go down into hell, and he's going to die, and he's going to defeat sin, and he's going to come up victorious. So his weapon is a cross. Caesar's is a double-axed sword. And so that's the idea of the difference between the text here. It's, it's absolutely amazing how the writer puts this together. Then the Romans would parade around the city to the place of the Temple of Jupiter. I don't know if you've ever seen the Temple of Jupiter, but the Temple of Jupiter is mostly in ruins, except for the fact that what would happen in these processions, in these parades, the Caesar would go through the streets of Rome and then he would come to the temple of Ju Jupiter. Why did he go there? Because it was the temple of the eternal souls. That's what it meant, the temple of the eternal souls. And to go to the temple of the eternal souls means you're living forever, Caesar. You got it made because you're going to live forever. Jesus wasn't led to the temple of Jupiter. He is led to Golgotha, the place of the skull. The temple of Jupiter was the place of eternal souls. Jesus is led to the place of the skull. That's Greek, Golgotha. In Latin, it's Calvarium. That's where we get Calvary. Calvary, the place of the skull without a jaw. The skull without a jaw. That's what Calvarium means, Calvary. And so he was led to the place of the skull. Now, I've been to Israel a couple of times, and uh, sometimes you get a little misled in some of these churches that have the place of the crucifixion or the place of the burial. And you think those are the places, and it's very hard to get that. But really, the truth is, that's probably not where he was crucified, where that church is. Probably the best place to understand this. And I remember when I was taken here, it was kind of a downer at first, because he said, really, the true place of the skull was known. It's even known today. And here it is 100 years ago. That's a 100-year-old picture right there. And I just want you to see that for a minute. You can see the skull without the jaw, okay? The place of the skull is very well known, but this is where it is today. It's a bus station. It's an Arab bus station. And the reason it's an Arab bus station is because the Arabs will not let Jerusalem have, con or the Jews have control of this portion of, you know, the geography of Jerusalem. And literally, to understand this, it really is a great picture of really where Jesus was crucified. He was outside of the city. Yeah, you can see the wall there on the edge. He was outside of the city at the place of the skull, and people would have been going in and out of the city and staring at Jesus and the two robbers crucified together as if it was a common sight. So in and out, just like a bus station. In and out, a lot of activity, going back and forth, people staring at this event while it goes on. That's so 
I guess the word is apropos for what really happened back then. It was just nonchalant. Here's another crucifixion, and um, it's at a bus station. But in this case, uh, it would be just outside the city wall there at one of the gate entrances. So, just to grasp that. Now, let me go on. Let me go on. Okay. Uh, then wine, the wine was offered to Caesar when he was in his parade. And the wine symbolized the drinking of the blood of those picture, people he, was, he victimized and killed. And so he'd drink that wine, then he'd throw the rest into the fire. But it's interesting that Jesus, the same thing. This all this parallel back to Caesar. Jesus refused the wine because he would not kill the pain. He was going to carry the full weight of what sin does to people. Sin shames people, he's going to look shameful. Sin tears people apart, it tears relationships apart. It's going to make it look as much as like sin can look. And so Jesus refused the wine. Can you just imagine doing anything at this level and refusing the painkiller? I mean, you just imagine anybody in here getting a root canal and going to your dentist and saying, no Novocaine for me, I'm going to take the pain. I mean... That is absolutely crazy. I've had two root canals, and I never want to have another one, okay? But, but, but to take that pain without any killing of, of that is just overwhelming to me to think that Jesus refused that. And so God treated Jesus at that moment, the Father treated Jesus at that moment as if he committed the sin of every person who ever lived, and Jesus took it all with no relief of the suffering. No relief. Why is this all in the Bible like this? Why did Mark take the time to do all this? Because what Mark is showing is an anti-triumph. All the Caesars were triumphant. And all of them paraded down through the city and did all these things that they did to Jesus in mockery. But it's an anti-triumph because there's nothing gaudy about it. It was gaudy for the Roman emperor. Yet Mark portrays this event as if he was triumphant. That's the whole point. It looks like he's not triumphant. What Mark's saying is he's, he's actually greater and more triumphant than any Caesar. Because with the very weapon of the cross, he went down into hell, he went down and defeated Satan, and in going down and defeating him, he came up victorious over death. What Roman Caesar has ever done that? See, so Mark's taking all of the things that these Romans believe were so successful, and he says, here's the real success. He's a Caesar, but he's so far beyond your Caesars. And that's why Mark does it. And so, um, that's the shame and suffering. Let me go on. The, I want to go to number two. The, advers the adversity of total abandonment. This is the second thing that sin does. Sin not only shames you and causes you to suffer, but it abandons you. If you have an affair, I promise you, you know what it's like to be abandoned at some level. Because the minute you reveal that is the minute you're saying, I deserve shame, and I feel shame, and I don't know what to do with the shame. But you suffer from that, and then people pull away from you. You say, well, mom's going to love me. Yeah, mom is going to love you. 
But still, mom's going to feel something inside. But she's going to love you. But still, you're going to feel the abandonment of sin. And what sin does is it has the ability to make people feel abandoned from you, make you feel suffering and shame that goes far to And that's why Jesus had to experience abandonment. He had to go through this because he had to feel the full weight of what sin does to us. So you got the story of Simon the Cyrene carrying the cross, and you got these two robbers crucified on the right and the left. Now I'm just going to jump into the, what it means, okay? Simon is a fake disciple. He is a stand-in disciple. And the two robbers are fake disciples, and they are stand-ins. The three make an entourage that every Caesar should have. A Caesar should have behind him in the parade two of his most faithful men he trusts above all else. The entourage behind him. The two most faithful men in Rome walk behind Caesar in the parade. The man out front carries his weapon. Simon, Simon the Cyrene carries the cross, the weapon out in front of Jesus, and yet the two robbers symbolize the two faithful entourages behind him. So where are Jesus' followers? Where are the 12? They have all abandoned him. Every one of them has abandoned him. Remember the watches? This is a new watch. This is the morning watch, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. when he is crucified at 9 a.m. He is abandoned. He eats supper with them at the Passover from 6 to 9 o'clock on the night before on Thursday. Then from 9 to 12, Judas decides to betray him. Then at 12 midnight, Judas actually betrays him. There's the first one. Then the other 10 see that abandonment with Judas, and they all forsook him. They all left. But Peter, the most faithful, hangs on till the end, till the fourth watch. 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., he is in a trial, as Jesus is in a trial, trying to be as faithful and loyal to Jesus as he can, but by the time 6 a.m. hits, man, he is gone. He is long gone. He forsook him. Everybody forsook him in that night watch, and then in chapter 15, verse 1, it says, in the morning watch, the idea is he's all alone. He's all alone before he's crucified. Where's Simon Peter? He is long gone. We don't even know where he is. You know who he's replaced by? Another Simon. He's replaced by Simon the Serene. It should have been Peter carrying the cross, but instead it is Simon, Cyrene carrying the cross. He's a stand-in. He's a fake disciple forced to carry his cross because he's got nobody. He's got nobody. Where's James and John, his other two most faithful? James and John said, can we sit on your right and on your left? And they're long gone. And so two of the stand-ins, the two robbers, are on his right and on his left. The two fake disciples. And those robbers are crucified on his right and left, and they are baptized into death with Jesus. And that's why the Bible says there in 28, he is numbered with the transgressors. He is numbered with them. The disciples are unfaithful in the morning watch, and Jesus in his darkest hour is abandoned by every one of his close associates. And then darkness descends over the earth at 12 p.m. And all the lights go out, and the whole place is dark. 
I love what one writer wrote in his sermon on this. He said it was the day God brought hell to earth. That's so true. The day God brought hell to earth. All the light flees. And now at this moment in time, now he's abandoned by all his close associates. Now he's abandoned by the Father in heaven himself. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, everybody abandons him. That's what you want to see in the book of Mark because the cross becomes the throne of a king. The cross becomes the throne of a king without a country, without subjects, and without power. But if he could just be lifted up, he would draw all men to him in absolute victory. It's just so lonely, so shameful, so much suffering. But that's the whole plan, is that he has to take all of that on, all of your shame, all of your suffering, all of your abandonment. He has to put it on himself. That's why the Bible says in John 3, verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And that was a prediction back in Numbers 20 that, that when the people were being bit by snakes, uh, they'd run to Moses and say, our people are dying. We were getting bit by these snakes and they were dying within 15 minutes. And Moses cried out to God, what do I do? He said, take a piece of bronze and beat it into a snake. And when the bronze looks like that, thing which bit them then lift it up. So he beat the bronze. And when it looked like the thing that bit the people, he lifted it up and told them, if you'll look on the brass serpent, you'll live. The very symbol of death became their victory. And Jesus, who knew no sin, became the shame of that moment in time because the very first thing they did before he ever got on the cross is they beat him. He had to be beaten. He had to be crushed. He had to look, by the time he got to the cross, like a serpent, like something of death. So those who would look and believe on him would live. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. It is the picture of Jesus taking our sin on himself and what that looks like. All the sneaky stuff we do with sin, he took it all. He took it all. He never committed adultery, but he became adultery. He never lied, but he became lies. He never gossiped, but he became gossip on the cross. So those would look on him and believe that through that payment of your sin, you got to pay for sin, you could be free. It's, it's absolutely too much to even take in that he would save us from our sin. I went way over. Um, that illustration was no good anyways. I'll use it another time, all right? I did it in the last service if you want to see it, but I'm going I'm to go ahead and stop. I didn't realize it was so late. Let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth. It's beautiful. Oh, to rest in that. We're waiting here for you. To rest in your sacrifice. 
just with every head bowed and eyes closed in this moment of time, you may be here and you've realized you have a sin debt. Joining this church ain't going to help you. Just trying to be a little better, trying to do the right things isn't going to help you. It's not going to get your sin debt paid for. All you're doing is building up more and more sins. And you're going to fail again. But the beautiful, the beautiful truth of the scriptures is that Jesus became your atonement. He became the payment. Because you're just ringing up your debts. But he put those debts on a cross and he looked like them. And he died for you. If you're here and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you've never said, Jesus, save me. You've trusted in something else. But now at this moment in time, you want to trust in him and him alone. And say, Jesus, save me. Say, Pastor Rob, I need to know that. I need that in my heart. I, know, I need to know that I walk out of here today, I'm saved and under the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that paid the price. If that's your need today, would you just, right now, I'm not going to embarrass you, heads are bowed, eyes are closed, but I, I just, would you lift up your hand and say, that's me, I need that, I need that settled. Just lift it up, lift up your hand. I want to make sure I see it. Okay, I see one hand over there. Is there another that would say, that's me. That's me, I need this settled. Yes, I see that in the back. Is there, yes, right there down the middle. I see your hand, you can put that down. Anyone else, just before I close, I'll make sure. Okay, you hands who went up, just pray this prayer right to yourself right now before God. God, my sin deserves judgment. I've learned from the word of God, you paid my sin debt. You paid my death. You took my hell. I put my faith and trust in you right now for the saving of my soul. Save me. And help me to be the person you want me to be. In Jesus' name. If you prayed that prayer, I believe under the authority of God's word. I saw your hand go up. I saw your heart. You put that prayer before God on the authority of God's word. That's the start of a walk in a relationship with God. That's salvation at its core. God's going to start to grow you as one of his children. Let him do his work. God, I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the opportunity to be able to proclaim it today. I lift it up to you today and ask your hand upon it now as we worship in song. May you be glorified and honored. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand to our feet. Praise team's going to lead us in this song. If there's a need you have this morning, you'd like to come to the altar. Of course, the altar is always open. If you would like someone to pray with you, we usually have someone watching to maybe come up and just pray with you, and they'll just lift up whatever that need may be today. Let's sing together as we continue our worship.